Hi. This is Robbie Martin of Media Roots Radio. What you're listening to is a 25-minute preview of an exclusive Patreon-only episode about the Freemasonic history of the United States. This episode is part two of three. In this particular episode, I focus on Joseph Smith, Albert Pike, the anti-Masonic movement in the United States, and the evolution of occultism in our culture. the men who call themselves Masons. Today, as always, Masons are men who act on the square, who guide their actions according to their belief in the supreme architect of the universe. What were they doing at the Green Dragon? They were meeting as Lodge brothers to plan the unique event that so effectively dramatized America's fight against tyranny. by staging the Boston Tea Party. What is the sign that points to the source whence flows the spirit that has contributed so much to the triumphs of freedom for these United States? That sign is in the hearts of men who know this emblem, who have known it since America's dawning. There you will find the answer. G is the initial of God. In Freemasonry, that symbol is indeed powerful. George Washington knew that sign and all that it stands for. He lived his life according to the principles for which it stands, and so helped lay the cornerstones of liberty. Every man I mention is a member of the Brotherhood of Freemasonry. Thus are they pledged to uphold the age-old ideals of honesty, integrity, and forthrightness. Tension between North and South had exploded into the tragedy of American fighting American. Despite four years of fighting, all were reunited as brothers and Masons for all Americans to honor for their valor and their sacrifice. Even in war, many were those who refused to forget the meaning of brotherhood. Stonewall Jackson, Winfield Hancock, and Albert Pike. And they've not given up, and it looks like it's very close to toppling. Here we go, Leslie. There are a lot of people who may not know much about Albert Pike. I very quickly deployed the National Guard. I said, get them in. After watching for an evening or two, we stopped the violence and restored peace and order to the streets. And last night, they had a little breakout again. They ripped down a statue that was 110 years old. Beautiful piece of art. 
This is happening all over the country. They're not happy. That's going to be very expensive for D.C. They're always looking for money. We need more money! Last week, a mob in downtown Washington, D.C. decided to tear down a statue of a man called Albert Pike. Pike was famous as a journalist and a poet and later as a prominent Freemason. But in the end, it didn't save him from the mob. They set fire to Pike's effigy as it lay on the ground. Whenever they found out that the Freemasons wanted to put in a statue of Albert Pike in Washington, the Grand the Army of the Republic was on fire. Hey, like, Nathan, I need to stop you for a second because uh, we're looking at these pictures. The statue is on fire. The statue of Confederate General Albert Pike is now on the ground and on fire. The word pig sprayed on the side of it. Uh, just lit up even more by protesters here. Why was Albert Pike, the only Confederate general, to have a statue still standing in Washington, D.C. today? It's because Albert Pike is arguably the world's most important and influential Freemason. And his contribution to Freemasonry was able to transcend the taboo of his racist views and association with the Confederacy. Before it was toppled, it stood in front of the federal courthouse, funded by the Scottish Rite Freemasons, standing in full view in the middle of Washington, D.C. Albert Pike is depicted in his statue, wearing a Masonic apron. Philadelphia, September 16, 1789 from Benjamin Franklin to George Washington. Dear Sir, My malady renders my sitting up to write rather painful to me, but I cannot let my son-in-law, Mr. Bosch, part for New York without congratulating you by him on the recovery of your health, so precious to us all, and on the growing strength of our new government under your administration. For my own personal ease, I should have died two years ago. But though... Those years have been spent in excruciating pain. I am pleased that I have lived them, since they have brought to me to see our present situation. I am now finishing my 84th, and probably with it, my career in this life. But in whatever state of existence I am placed hereafter, if I retain any memory of what has passed here, I shall, with it, retain the esteem, respect, and affection for which I have long been. My dear friend, yours most sincerely, Benjamin Franklin. Franklin died a few months later in April 1790.
Hello. Welcome to Media Roots Radio again. This is Robbie Martin. On last month's episode, we ended it in the 1790s. After the Revolutionary War, former President George Washington retired to his plantation in Mount Vernon where he spent most of his time writing letters. The promise made by the Founding Fathers to make all men equal was betrayed. Black men who fought in the Revolutionary Army were not granted their freedom. And the man now in the presidency was John Adams, Washington's vice president. Things that may have been once hopeful and spirited in the new United States turned. Something changed, and the climate in the country started to drift towards the paranoid and conspiratorial. And not just among the people themselves, but also among the lawmakers. A government that was supposed to be a beacon of hope. Under John Adams' administration, one of the most draconian laws the colonial world or the new United States had seen so far was passed. Out of apparent fear of imminent war with France, a relationship that had also frayed since the Revolutionary War. This new law was called the Alien and Sedition Act and set America on a surprisingly tyrannical course and an imperial course as well, stifling free speech in the name of foreign policy. Think the progenitor of the Patriot Act. In the late 1790s, in the world of Freemasonry, America became the country with the largest representation of the fraternity, which also now included the most powerful man in the new world, George Washington, who arguably was now the representative of this American-centric fraternity, a fraternity that practiced the occult. But this esteem that American Freemasonry had gained and the esteem that Freemasonry in general had gained as a result of figures involved in the revolution would quickly evaporate. On last month's episode of Media Roots Radio, we ended it with a reverend named G.W. Snyder trying to conspiracy pill the recently retired President of the United States George Washington. He was trying to pill George Washington about Freemasonry and how he thought it was a dangerous organization that intends to erode the church and has nefarious goals to undermine governments in coups and plots. And while G.W. Snyder might have been a devout Christian, something that I am not. He was kind of onto something. There were some kernels of truth in what G.W. Snyder was telling Washington. But Snyder, maybe out of respect, 
gave the president the benefit of the doubt, hoping to enlighten him about his conspiracy invading the so-called English lodges that Washington presided over. Freemasonry established itself with the meeting of the four lodges in England. It then became popular in France. It was already popular in Scotland and Ireland and even Italy and Spain. But at the time G.W. Snyder wrote this letter, America dominated the world in terms of Freemasonic membership. G.W. Snyder was focused on the idea that Freemasonry had corrupted parts of Europe. But what perhaps G.W. Snyder did not realize is that the American Revolutionary War as we know it was plotted, conspired about, and then executed by prominent high society Freemasonic aristocrats through foreign Freemasonic allies in France and in Germany. It wasn't a problem with the Illuminati infecting the Freemasonic lodges in the US, as Snyder was saying. It's that Freemasonry itself was an occult practice that did have involvement in revolutionary war coup-making and conspiring. George Washington, although a man of great interest in writing letters to total strangers, he still dodges G.W. Snyder's concerns in written form. Instead of trying to explain to G.W. Snyder why Freemasonry isn't evil, Washington disassociates himself from the fraternity, the secret society, this supposedly ancient stoneworkers guild that had occult secrets going back to biblical times. Washington disassociates himself from this and brushes the man's concerns aside. So what was this book that G.W. Snyder was telling George Washington to read that he sent him a copy of? The book was called Proof of a Conspiracy. It's essentially a book making the charge that Adam Weishoff of the Illuminati Society and the Jacobinites aimed to spread a virus meant to destroy religion by infiltrating governments, the Freemasons, and aspects of society all over the world. Did it include actual proof of a conspiracy? Not necessarily, but the man who wrote it wasn't a total crazy person either. Even though on Wikipedia it says later in his life he became a quote-unquote conspiracy theorist. How closely does proof of a conspiracy resemble modern narratives about Freemasons being involved in coups and revolutions, given that this book was released in 1797? Well, not as much as you'd think. There's a strong focus on the French Revolution in it and how some Masons were responsible for that. But surprisingly, almost no mention of the American Founding Fathers or the Revolution makes it into his book. Aside from one mention of someone labeled as Dr. Franklin, seemingly referring to Benjamin Franklin, 
He seems to not negatively mention any of the other founding fathers. Even its focus on Freemasonry itself is kind of a punt. It too gives Masonry, in general, the benefit of the doubt of having been corrupted by toxic, irreligious elements. So who wrote this anti-Illuminati book in 1797? He was a Scottish scientist and inventor named John Robinson, who was influenced by another anti-Masonic, anti-Illuminati French aristocrat writer named Augustin Burrell. John Robinson was a strange character, but also somewhat of a brilliant man himself. At the time of authoring his book, Proof of a Conspiracy, he was one of the world's most renowned entomologists, having allegedly the world's largest insect specimen collection known at the time. He was also an early automobile pioneer and inventor who played a role in the first steam-powered car. His most well-known invention was the siren. George Washington was now retired, and from his home in Mount Vernon, he continued to write letters to different people, discussing politics, discussing his opinion on the John Adams presidency, which, unsurprisingly, George Washington largely agreed with. And in a series of letters from his home in Mount Vernon, he agreed with the passing of the Alien and Sedition Acts. At the time the letters were written, Thomas Jefferson's camp was now strongly at odds with John Adams' Federalists. George Washington's first letter about why he supported the Alien and Sedition Act was written from Philadelphia on November 22, 1798. George Washington writes, I will take the liberty of advising such as are not thoroughly convinced and whose minds are yet open to conviction to read the pieces and hear the arguments which have been adduced in favor of as well as those against the constitutionality and expediency of those laws before they decide. And consider to what lengths a certain description of men in our country have already driven and even resolved to further drive matters and then ask themselves if it is not time and expedient to resort to protecting laws against aliens for citizens you certainly know are not affected by that law, who acknowledge no allegiance to this country and in many instances are sent among us for the express purposes of poisoning the minds of our people and to sow dissensions among them in order to alienate their affections from the government of their choice, thereby endeavoring to dissolve the Union, and of course, the fair and happy prospects which were unfolding. He returned to Mount Vernon, and the day after Christmas, wrote another letter in support of the Alien and Sedition Act. Washington's legacy as the leader of this new free world, and his legacy as the leader of the so-called English Lodges, as G.W. Snyder said. George Washington's legacy would end with him turning against the values in the Constitution with xenophobia and paranoia about foreigners in the United States. George Washington died on December 14th 1799. Between 10 and 11 p.m. at night, he passed away, surrounded by his wife, Martha, who sat at the foot of the bed. 
his physician and good friend, Dr. James Craig, and Tobias Lear, his personal secretary. People in the late 1700s still did die from getting cold and not changing their clothes when they got home. Because apparently on December 12th, when George Washington was doing some farming on horseback and it began to snow, he didn't change out of his wet clothes and went straight to dinner. He got a sore throat the next morning and his condition worsened. And on the night of the 14th, he ended up dying from a throat infection. The very last conversation George Washington had was with his secretary, Tobias Lear. Concerned with his own burial arrangements, Washington told him, Have me decently buried, and do not let my body be put into the vault in less than three days after I am dead. Washington made sure he understood and said, Do you understand? Washington spoke his final words, Tis well. Perhaps in George Washington's last vision, maybe he caught a glimpse of the grand architect of the universe that he had so long dedicated his life to in the form of Freemasonry. So perhaps in his mind, his final word was Mahabin Mahavon. Is there no hope for the widow's son? When George Washington passed, he had lost most of his teeth, which he had started losing in his early 20s. George Washington wore a pair of expensive, customized dentures for most of his later life. And these dentures were not made from wood, as commonly believed. They were actually partly made from human teeth. Presumably, Washington got these teeth from his own slaves, but nobody really knows for sure where they came from. The actual dentures are owned by the Mount Vernon Ladies Association. And for a lot of his later life, he was in excruciating pain from the way that these dentures bulged out his cheeks, which are clearly visible on one of the last painted portraits of George Washington ever done. At George Washington's 1799 funeral, Brothers of the Alexandria Freemasonic Lodge perform Masonic rites. At 3 p.m. on December 16th, Tobias Lear, George Washington's secretary, starts his account of George Washington's funeral in his diary. Martha Washington was ill at the time of the funeral. She was bedridden in her home all day long, so she didn't witness the actual funeral. Freemasons, who were there to give George Washington his final ritualistic Masonic burial rites, were invited by Martha and the family and wished by George Washington before he passed. In Masonic tradition, Masons would open a Lodge of Sorrow symbolically inside Washington's home before the service. But since Martha was ill in bed, it's not known if they skipped this part of the process. 
the casket was marched from Washington's Mount Vernon mansion towards a hill several hundred feet away. There were around 75 to 100 bystanders comprised of family, friends, fellow Masonic brothers, and military figures at Mount Vernon. They were there to watch Washington's funeral and casket get entombed. And the already built tomb built into the side of a very small hill. The bystanders stood above this little hill and watched the funeral procession below. Thomas Davies of the Episcopal Church led the funeral prayer. Assisted by Presbyterian minister John Muir. This is the same Reverend John Muir who as chaplain of the Alexandria Masonic Lodge took part with his brother Masons in the Cornerstone Lane ceremony at the original Washington, D.C. diamond southernmost tip. Dr. Alicia Colin Dick was also at this Cornerstone Lane ceremony. He was the worshipful master of the Alexandria Lodge. Reverend Thomas Davies and Reverend John Muir first led this normal funeral service for Washington immediately followed by a Masonic burial rite. The Masonic burial rite also involved Reverend John Muir, who played a dual role in the funeral. He was assisted by Dr. Alicia Colin Dick. These men placed a Masonic apron and two Masonic swords on the casket before reading the Masonic service as prescribed by the Grand Lodge in Virginia. After the Masonic funeral rites were said, the attending Masonic brothers filed past the coffin, one by one, slowly, placing a branch of evergreen tree upon the casket as they passed. In Freemasonry, the evergreen branches represent the eternal soul. As the Masons filed around the casket with their evergreen branches, two cannons fired in the background, giving a final salute. The Masonic brethren then remove the apron and swords from the casket and that it is carried away slowly inside the hillside tomb in Mount Vernon. So if you liked what you heard, please consider donating to Media Roots Radio by going to patreon.com slash Media Roots Radio And by donating as little as $5 a month, you get access to all of our bonus episodes, including the full three-and-a-half-hour version of the clip you just heard. Thanks.